We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning. It's good to see you and everybody, the whole church family here, getting themselves organized. All right, well, today I have uh, not a continuation of our previous uh, miniature series, but... uh, a um, continuation of something else that I started last week, which was to look back in my ministry planning notes and to dig up some old questions that I had that I hadn't, I don't think I had adequately addressed or addressed at all. And so I'll do that this morning with a few items and we'll just see how far we get. Don't hesitate to interact with me this morning in our time. The, the one question that I had from a long while back was, had to do with social issues and the preaching uh, program in the church. And the question was uh, why I do not address from the pulpit current events. Uh, we almost seems like the, the questioner was saying, is there, a, is there a better forum for those or why don't you do that? And I, I begin to respond to that just by saying to myself and to you, you know, I the things that we address from the pulpit preaching the Word of God are, by definition, relevant because it's from God. It's the Word of God. It's not uh, like it's old, dusty material that doesn't have any relevance to today. It certainly does. It's always by definition that way. But I don't major on contemporary matters for a number of reasons. Now, maybe you have a different opinion and say, oh, he always talks about contemporary issues. Uh, you know, like if if you kind of have a recency bias and you say, oh, he's talking about COVID all the time. Well, that's partly because I know you're thinking about COVID all the time and we want to respond to it in a biblical fashion. Um, but, like you know, examples that come to mind of the contemporary issues. And this was, this first one is actually, it was going on back in the time that I got the question, Christians being killed by the hundreds or thousands by terrorists or followers of other false religions. And back in the time period 2008 to 16, that was an ongoing reality. That wasn't something from 2,000 years ago or 2,500 years ago like what I'll talk about this morning in the morning worship service briefly in our new series. But uh, that was a problematic and troublesome thing. Uh, Gay marriage has been legalized by the Supreme Court, so to speak, I hate the word legalized because the court doesn't write law, but people think it does, uh, unfortunately, very unwisely. Um, you know, there's been believers whose businesses have been closed because they, they discriminate, in quotes, about what they do, baking cakes and taking pictures and that sort of thing. You know about those cases. Slaughter of thousands of babies daily in the United States and around the world. Race and police issues, wokeness, CRT, diversity, equity, inclusion, training, and so on. 
There's economic issues like income inequality, worker productivity, lack of workers. I'll mention something about that in this session if we have time. Uh, how education has been co-opted to take over the minds of our children. I warn you about that. Uh, you know, and I think if you have, you know, certainly if you have questions about that, I'm happy to talk to you about it on an individual basis. But public education is something you have to be extremely careful of these days. I know we have public school teachers here. I'm not casting aspersions on all of them, but uh, there are problems in the system. Uh, the rise of transgenderism and uh, what I'll call the pronoun wars. The pronoun wars, right? Yeah, uh, making up new pronouns to uh, satisfy the pretend ideas of some people and what they're changing themselves to be, they think. Uh, zoning and related issues that uh, people use to stop churches or ministries from building or using a building. There's clear biblical teaching that touches on most of these issues, and we can make clear statements about them. I'm happy to do that, often very strong moral statements about them. The question posed to me was something like this. Do you ever feel the need to address these things from the pulpit, or is there a more appropriate avenue for discussion? In some sense, you know, like, say, the abortion issue, for example, it's so obvious that I should not have to say a whole lot about it. It's murder. I mean, you know, nobody asks me, why don't you talk about all the shootings and murders that happened in Chicago last weekend? Well, that's obvious. You know, it's biblically wrong. Uh, it's out of control. Uh, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, so I don't, I don't want to dismiss things like that, but we can't keep talking about these issues as if they're some you know, new thing under the sun. They've been going on for decades. All the time that I've been in ministry, these, most, many of these things have been an issue at some level or another uh, for, for over 20 years. And um, so, yes, I do feel the need sometimes, but not to spend lengthy periods of time on them. Uh, we can often speak about these issues and often do offline, I say, you know, not on our YouTube live stream necessarily or in the, in the middle of the service, but we can dialogue back and forth about these issues. Some issues like these involve perspectives, information, or questions that cannot be addressed easily in a monologue format. You understand monologue, just me speaking. They require what I'll call a feedback loop in a conversation back and forth. You know, what are you thinking about that issue? Why is it troubling you? What particular aspect of it can we work on together? That sort of thing, which is not best suited to a one-sided conversation. And nor can I sit in my study and, you know, kind of as an oracle figure out all the different aspects that might need to be addressed. It's just too hard to do that. Um, of course, some do do things like that, and they end up writing books on the subject because they become experts on it and so on. Um, most of these issues are, and in this church, have been addressed during the normal course of expositional preaching uh, that goes through the entire text of Scripture. And if you're an alert Bible teacher or shepherd, pastor, you'll note those contemporary issues that are on the minds of the church family, and we'll address those as they come up without saying, okay, today, folks, we're gonna, I'm going to preach a message you know, from, from uh, Hezekiah on DEI. You know, uh, that's going to be tough to find. Um, some issues, too, are controversial because of entrenched viewpoints. 
work with me here now, okay? Work with me. For example, if I were to say, in the United States, there is much less systematized racism today than there was 175 years ago. I think you might agree, many of you would agree, that I would be objectively correct to make that statement. Yet people who have been trained by teachers who believe that there is a lot of systematic racism today will decry that statement as out of touch with reality. And there will be no convincing them otherwise. They will say, you are tone deaf to say that. Well, I'm not tone deaf at all. I'm very, uh, I, I can hear tones. <laughs> I can hear different frequencies uh, of conversation. But I think it's unarguable that there is less systematized racism today than there was 175 years ago. And that's good. That's improvement. Uh, notice that I did not say there is no racism today, right? But somebody would hear me say the statement that there's less systematized racism today than there was 175 years ago, and they'd say, what are you saying? There's no racism today? Take my words at the value that I gave them. Don't read into them. Uh, Obviously, it would be false to say there's no racism today. Of course, there is racism today. Why? Because racism is just one form of hatred. And humans have hatred in their heart since the beginning of time and will ever until heaven begins. But people sometimes do not hear what you say. They hear what their training has conditioned their ears to hear. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, so they, they, they already know what you think because you're white or you're a male or you're a Christian or you're, they already know, but they don't know because they haven't engaged in a dialogue with you like I talked about earlier. But these controversial issues then must be handled with care. Another example, Ann Arbor uh, back in August of 2021 published, a, uh, the city council published a ban on gay conversion therapy I plan to write about that and perhaps speak on it at some point, but since it came out in August of last year, uh, as you can tell, I haven't raced to deal with it. I'm not, you know, uh, a uh, ambulance-chasing uh, theologian that goes after every issue that comes out right as it comes out and, and have to get to the, you know, make a public address about it or uh, release a, a statement to the press or whatever. It does not warrant getting super excited and responding immediately. We just keep doing what we're called to do and basically ignore anyone who says that we cannot do it. We're not going to continue, stop preaching to people to be converted from their sin. Their, their machinations and pronouncements make no difference to God's work. It just continues on as it always has. The heathen rage and imagine a vain thing. That's their problem. That's not my problem. The job of a pastor is given in Scripture. One of the key items in his job description is this. In 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Not contemporary issues, not social gospel, not book or movie reviews, not social improvement, not philosophy, not inspiration, not psychology. He's to preach the Bible preach the Bible. 
Does that mean he never addresses? No, of course he always will find opportunities in preaching expositionally to address issues. For example, we come to the book of Philemon, and what do we have to preach on right away at the beginning? I preached a three-part series on slavery and the biblical understanding of slavery and why chattel slavery was wrong, always has been wrong throughout all of history and, and all of that. So those issues will come. So in short, I do feel a need to speak on the issues, but mainly as they arise in our expositional series or become pressing in the church life. For, for example, to go back to an earlier one I mentioned to address COVID during the pandemic was unavoidable. I mean, it caused us to have to close the church for a while. How can you not say anything about that or ignore that it exists? So many questions arose that we could address from Scripture and from a scriptural worldview that I had to say things from time to time. It's also a matter of shepherding in terms of reminding us of the things that we've already learned and the need to trust in the Lord, that we can't trust, you know, we can't be like Asa who got diseased in his feet and did what? Ran to the physicians and never inquired of the Lord. Are we going to be like that? didn't say that you couldn't use physicians, but you better be praying about it. You better be asking God's help. You better be seeking his direction and guidance. Um, you know, are you fearing the, Lord, uh, fearing the Lord or are you fearing COVID more? Frankly, I think many people fear COVID more than they fear the Lord. I, I just, I can't avoid thinking that. The, 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 the evidence is obvious. And, 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 and sometimes there is a better forum for speaking on these issues. A Sunday school class like this one, a one-on-one -on -one conversation, a discussion in the hallway after we meet, uh, or something like that. So, you know, we don't want to shut these issues out, but I don't want to become known and this church to become known as a social issue preaching church where every Sunday you come and it's always the current event that is going on. That is not going to feed our souls. And in fact, in the course of feeding our souls, we are preparing ourselves to deal with every eventuality that comes to pass so that you're tuned up to be able to handle them from Monday to Saturday without having to, you know, call up the pastor or whatever and say, what do we do about this? You know, no, you just keep living your Christian life. Relax, take it easy, deal with what comes as you have to deal with it, and, uh, and, and God will carry us through it. So, uh, again, I don't want to push those issues off, but I want to deal with them in their proper context and in the proper amount that's one of those things. You know, if you have a church that has a hobby horse issue, then you have a problem no matter what that hobby horse is. That hobby horse could be the King James Bible. That hobby horse could be the doctrines of grace. You know, I don't, I don't go for the first one of those examples. Doctrines of grace, wonderful. I'd love to learn all about them. But if that's all you're talking about, what about the rest of the counsel of God, you know? Obviously, God is gracious, and God is sovereign, and God chooses, and God ordains, and God, you know, it's by faith alone, and all of the scripture alone, everything, wonderful. But if those are your hobby horses, then you have a problem, because even the truth, when it's out of proportion to the rest of the truth, can become wrong. Does that make sense? Because then you're missing on the context of the whole counsel of God. So, those are my thoughts on that issue. Briefly, any comments on that before I move on to number two?
item in our smorgasbord this morning. Okay, very good. Um, I had a question this week from one of our members uh, about Romans 3.30. So let's turn our Bibles there, Romans 3.30. And uh, we will, this question is not very hard to answer, but it does raise a couple of interesting issues. So we'll turn to Romans 3.30. And uh, this is, a link to this is placed on the website at at fbcaa.org slash docs, D-O-C-S. Um, and it's not a, one of my normal sets of notes. It's just a blog post that I wrote uh, a few days ago, a couple days ago. Romans 3.30, here's what it says. One God will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Why are two different prepositions used? It says God will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. You see that? Okay, now, does that raise a question in your mind? Some of you are like, no, that doesn't raise a question in my mind. I've got it all figured out. Yes, yes, that's right. Abraham was. In fact, in Romans chapter 4, Paul spends a moment to speak about that issue that Abraham was justified prior to his circumcision. Uh, Genesis 15, 6 says Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. So we know that at least by that point in 15 that he's justified. He's been made righteous before God. When was circumcision given to Abraham as, a, uh, as an ordinance, as a... Uh, you know, a command as a sign, chapter 17. Um, let's see, where it is in Romans chapter 4. We're getting off our, uh, off our topic here already, but ver- uh, Romans 4, 9, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? Uh, for we say that it was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of the circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. Here's why God wanted to make clear that he might be the father of all who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. So even for a Jewish person who places great emphasis on the sign of circumcision and the sign that that is in terms of his covenant relationship with God has to admit even his greatest forefather, Abraham, was justified before he was circumcised. So that means that you can't close out Gentiles from justification just because they're Gentiles. Okay? But the point of the question was more along the lines of uh, what is the diff- is there a difference or why is it that he will justify the circumcision, the circumcision would be the Jews, right? That he will justify the Jews by faith and he would justify the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, through faith. So first what I did is I went to my Greek text and I said, is, is it really true that there are two different prepositions used here, by and through? Okay. And if you're an alert reader, you might have noticed that uh, before. Uh, and it is true because the first preposition is the word ek, out of. We could say, I'm circumcised out of faith or by faith is a good translation in English. And the second preposition, through, 
It's a very common Greek word, dia, D-I-A, which does mean through or on account of. So the question is now, why is this? The bottom line for me is, and here's the answer, after this you can shut off your brain and not listen anymore. Ha-ha, I'm just kidding. Uh, but the bottom line is this. This is most likely a stylistic variation, and there's no difference intended in the meaning of those two prepositions. You'll see this kind of thing often. We don't want to overplay this hand but because you can miss important nuances sometimes, but you don't want to make every single different word mean entirely something different than something that could be nearly or exactly synonymous with it. And you'll see it in the, in the Psalms or in the book of Proverbs. You'll have a line and then you'll have another line that's what? synonymously parallel with the first one. It says in different words what the first one says. Maybe it gives you a different angle on it or a different nuance a little bit, but it's basically saying the exact same thing. And, and that's okay. It's trying to emphasize what he's saying and trying to get across the truth of what he's saying. So uh, I think that's the, the bottom line answer. And this conclusion is supported by the truth gleaned from our systematic theology studies that there's only one way of salvation. There's not a way of salvation by faith and another way of salvation through faith. I mean, if you try to do that, then you get into real trouble. Uh, And if you try also to make a way of salvation for the Jew that's different than for the Gentile, then you get into another kind of trouble. There's no such thing as a dual covenant view, it's called. Dual covenant, meaning there's one for the Gentiles and one for the Jews. Or what I would call pejoratively, there's no automatic pass to the Jew because he's the people of God. Okay, He's no more the people of God when he's born than some pagan Gentile. He's no more the people of God if he's not exercising faith in the Messiah than a Gentile who doesn't exercise faith in the Messiah. If a Jew does not exercise faith in the Messiah Jesus, they cannot be saved. And if Gentiles do not exercise faith in the Messiah Jesus, they cannot be saved either. Um, Now there's a commentator named Moo, Doug Moo, who points out there are two other places where these prepositions are neighbors like this, and they use the same object. Romans 11.36, For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Now here in this context, from him and through him and to him are not parallels. They are expressing a different nuance. God, out of God comes and through him are sustained and to him is the goal of these all things that Paul is talking about in Romans 11.36 in this doxology. And then 2 Peter 3.5 is another example. Given the, the, uh, the, I'll read the ESV here. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water, that's ek, and through water, dia, by the word of God. So he's, there is some difference here, formed out of water and through water. You know, you have that, all that watery beginning to the creation, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. God had made the heavens and the earth in, in rough, roughed-in form, and then he began to form and fill it. And, the, if you will, the land emerged from the sea. He 
put the seabeds there and connected everything together like it was supposed to be. And so it was out of and through the water. And of course, that passage deals with then water, the water of the flood later on. Um, that is that is a little bit of a hard one to understand. But if we just leave it at that level for the moment, let's look then at this next statement I make in my note. And that is in these verses, the context demonstrates that the different prepositions mean different things. That is, they're not used as synonyms. But in the context of Romans 3, they are used as synonyms. So you have to look at the context just like everything else. Don't take God's words out of context. Now also, this little question reminds us of an important principle in interpreting the Bible. You have to be very sure if you're going to build a big theological point on a small preposition, okay? Uh, Picture it this way. You have the preposition as your foundation, which is two letters or three, and you build this huge structure on it. Usually the foundation is supposed to be kind of the biggest, strongest, you know, most fixed point. But if you're building your foundation, you're building your big building on, you know, ek, two. I mean, that thing can just topple over very easily, you know, to think of it in a building analogy. You don't want to build big theological points on small prepositions. Prepositions, even though I've just said what I said, they are outsized in their importance, you know, don't diminuate them. Don't say, well, they're, no, they're not important. Remember the, the study I gave last week on the slides there, and I talked about sometimes if a translation leaves out a conjunction or a preposition or something like that, it can be, you know, bad for your understanding of that. Well, that's because they modify ideas and connect ideas together to create larger and more significant ideas. And if you miss those significant ideas, you miss a lot. So prepositions are important, maybe more so than their small size, two or three or four letters would indicate, but they're not that outsized whereby you can undermine a clear theological truth with an argument based on a dubious distinction, which can most easily be explained as a synonymous use. So I've seen many times people that are um, maybe a little ignorant, uninformed, who build these huge skyscrapers on top of these little kinds of prepositions. And they'll say things like, well, look, Paul says that some people are justified by faith and some are justified through faith. Because the Spirit of God inspired those words, there's got to be a difference between them. Well, maybe the Spirit of God inspired those words so there was a stylistic difference but no meaning difference because we know that there's only one way of salvation. So my ears are always kind of tuned up for that sort of thing when I see somebody making a statement like that and I'm just like, (laughs) go back to school, man, (laughs) you know. Or, or, or don't think in such a small box because you're, ma- you're preaching heresy in the end. You're thinking you're being honoring to God by saying the Spirit of God inspired these words and they all have a unique meaning. Sometimes words just simply don't have a unique meaning. And I think some of that is because we just don't know enough language. We haven't studied our grammar correctly enough 
or we haven't studied another language. How many of you know another language like somewhat? Somewhat. A very small percentage of our people. Well, maybe 20 or 30. Uh, Typically, Americans are very bad in this area. Europeans, not so much. Middle Easterners. People frequently over the ages knew two or three or more languages because they had to. We lived in this kind of cloistered environment, and English has become the lingua franca of the world, and we become lazy about learning other languages. If you just know two languages and you know about what it means to translate between one and the other of them, you will be disabused of a lot of this foolishness about building skyscrapers on little prepositions because language is not like that. It's a little bit different than that. So uh, that's prepositions. Uh, We have a few minutes left unless you have a question uh, on that. Okay. Uh, I also was uh, some months ago given a question or a comment about um, the worker shortage. The worker shortage. So I thought I'd make some comments on that. Uh, somebody wrote about what he, to me about what he called the strange shortage of workers in spite of the high demand for jobs by employers. And I just spent a moment to look up on the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. Roughly, this is very rough, I think, about 10 million job openings right now. And uh, as I saw a, a count of a million people who are seeking work. Now, it's probably more than that. I, I would hope it's more than that, although the labor force participation rate, which numbers I don't have off the top of my head, I think has decreased uh, notably in the last couple of years. But it makes the worker shortage somewhat mysterious that you have job openings but you don't have people filling those job openings. Where did all the workers go? And this has become an issue in corporate meetings and in the media. Every place that I go, several places I've stopped to talk to the owner or the manager of a department or a store, and uh, the the story is the same everywhere. They cannot find workers. Um, You know, for your older teenage kids, (laughs) this is like a golden opportunity, you know. Uh, If you just... (laughs) <laughs> the statement was, if you just show up on time and regularly, you're a superstar. Now, when I was that age, you not only had to show up on time and, and regularly, but you had to do a good job. Now it's just at least, you know, this, at least two of those qualifications are still there. But uh, it's a sad state of affairs. I mean, I went into a store one time, a retail store, and the aisles were a disaster. You couldn't find anything. It was, you know, not stocked properly. Everything was mixed up. It was just a mess. And I'm thinking, man, there's got to be some per- some person who can organize this, get this back into shape, and, and just have their job to be to keep things like that. Well, the, the person who was writing to me commented that the whole scenario represents an opportunity for Christians to stand out as being different, which we are different in everything, including in our labor practices, in our work ethic. Now, I'm unable to determine all the root causes of the great worker shortage, we'll call it, but let me offer a few thoughts that were sparked here. Uh, First of all, wages are stagnant, to me it seems anyway. They're not keeping up with inflation at this point. If wages are going up at 3%, everybody says, hurrah, and then they realize, oh, inflation is 8.6%, meaning wages are going down by 5.6% effectively more or less, criticize my math, but I think it's pretty sound to say that if you're going up by three and 
it's eaten up at 8.6 that you're, you're getting behind the eight ball. It can be a depressing situation, but that does not mean that Christians give up work. You know, if you say, well, I was making $17 an hour, and now I'm only able to effectively make you know, inflation adjusted or because of this company or I lost my job, $15 an hour, uh, I quit. Really? Is that what God says you can do? No, not at all. God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to work the garden. Work is a gift from God. Wake up, friends. Work is not something that is uh, an evil that has to be endured. If you see it that way, then of course it's going to be monotonous and a doldrum. But it is something that we can do and enjoy to a certain extent. And uh, hopefully you can find something or have found something that is to a certain extent enjoyable. But... Uh, you know, not to be too pessimistic, but as my dad always said, it's not work unless you'd rather be doing something else. You know, everybody wants to get to their hobbies and their family and their entertainment and all of that sort of thing. So, yes, there is an aspect of work that's work. Uh, you know, I was talking to one of the brothers this morning. We had to go pick some weeds outside to beautify the building a little bit. And, uh, you know, picking weeds by yourself, he said, that's the worst, you know. It's better when you do it with one or with two or more people because at least you can talk while you're picking weeds and uh, enjoy the opportunity for fellowship. Um, secondly, the government dole is too easy to access. Uh, many people are on unemployment. Some are on disability but are perfectly able to hold a job. Uh, not, not any job, obviously, if they have some level of disability, but some job. And I applaud those who try to work even if the wages are lower than they should be they think, or they have some level of disability. Thirdly, there is a poor work ethic. An entitlement mentality exists in many people whereby they feel that they are owed some basic level of subsistence. You hear um, increasingly calls for what's called UBI, universal basic income, and other free money. Uh, which are manifestations of this entitlement mentality. Christians should be far away from this trend. And I'll just make a practical application. Any family man who in this economy, or any man really, uh, or any single person who is you know, of, of adult age, who is out of work for any length of time is not looking hard enough, is not looking hard enough, or is not willing to take what is available, even if it's for a short term. It's not as if there are one million job openings and 10 million job seekers. There are 10 million job openings and one million seekers. That means that you can get a couple of jobs if you want. You should be able to. Um, it should be easy to find work. You might not like the work, but that's what work is sometimes. If a man will not work, Paul says what? He shall not eat. Simple. Anecdotally, I spoke with the recently, actually uh, just about a week ago, a business owner in our area who said that he has noticed many families are switching gears to have mom stay at home. To that, I say, hallelujah. This trend is, according to him, because sending kids to daycare and he gave some numbers. I don't know what the numbers are these days, but if you send a child to daycare at $400 a week and then you go to work 
for which you need a car and insurance and gas and repairs and tires and you earn 650 a week you're not really ahead all that much it might not even be that much you think 250 a week oh wow i'm making 1000 a month you know okay but at what cost at what cost you're not getting significantly farther ahead you when you consider all the costs of it. Now, I just found this interesting. The American Psychological Association, uh, I don't, almost never do I quote them as an authority. You know why. Listen to this. They lament the movement of women out of the workforce. They attribute it to this, and I quote, insidious societal message that women should be mothers and that mothers should put their families first. That's insidious, isn't it? Terrible. Instead of opting out, women are being pushed out. That's the end of the quote. As if women being mothers and putting family first is a bad thing. I feel, I feel, personally, I fail to see where women are being pushed out. There may be, obviously, there are some cases. I've seen men pushed out of their work, especially when they hit about age 55. And there's the you know, kind of hidden age discrimination there in the workforce. Oh, man, that's ripe for a lawsuit there. But in any case, uh, so obviously these things happen, but I, I fail to see where, you know, the, the patriarchy is saying to itself, boy, this is our opportunity. We're going to push all the women out of the workforce and finally put them back home. I just don't see that attitude, you know, surrounding our, our nation. Um, perhaps this whole thing is a needed correction. I actually rejoice at the trend that this fellow observed because children need mom at home. That notion, though, is ridiculed as an old-fashioned patriarchal thing to say. But many women are recognizing today the blessing of being at home with their children in the younger years. If you want to be a mom at home, what do I say? Go for it. I love it. God does too. Uh, There's nothing wrong with that, and there's no higher calling to which you can aspire than to influence the next generation for God. And you can do that at home. That is powerful, my friends. It's somewhat of a luxury too, if you think about it. If your husband can work and you can, you know, kind of reduce the necessary means down so that you can stay at home and not have to go out into that rat race... You know, it's dangerous out there, too, both for men and women. I've long believed that the entrance of many women into the workforce over the years has had the completely predictable impact of increasing worker supply. Now you're thinking of Economics 101. When you increase the supply, what do you do to the price? You drive the price down. You increase the supply... You drive the price down. Or if you, oppositely, if you decrease the supply, what happens? If you decrease the supply of gasoline, what happens to the price of gasoline? Okay, it goes up. But if you increase the supply and flood the market with gas, the price is going to come down. Labor is the same thing. It's like one of these, you know, axioms of life, that the, the law of supply and demand. If you increase the supply of labor, the price of labor is going to go down from the side of the buyer of labor. Who's the buyer of labor? The employer. And you are the 
person that's providing the service. So if the price of labor comes down, that price of labor is also known as what? Wages, your income. So if you have more people flooding into the workforce, this depresses wages. As a result, it has become harder over the years for a family to make it on the income of one spouse because the wages of the husband, let's just say in the traditional arrangement, have been reduced by the increased supply of workers in the economy. And so if some pull out of the workforce, this reduces the supply of workers and should push the wages up somewhat. Now, I don't count that as an insidious thing. That's a thing. That's an economic reality, but I don't think it's insidious. And then there's number five, finally, the great resignation that some have noticed. Some uh, were what we might call permanent resignations, that people just left the workforce. Others were simply to move on to a better job. Some people left work because they disagreed with the COVID policies and vaccination policies of their employers. You know, either they were too strict or too lax. Others left their job because the pandemic caused them to realize things about their quality of life and dissatisfaction with their career, desire for more open or liberal uh, remote work policies and that sort of thing. But you can see how Christians should be different in a lot of these areas. Moms staying at home should not be a problem. Uh, dads working, people finding work, not being lazy, not being entitled. Uh, Christians should have the best work ethic of any employee in the business. Um, you know, they should be focused on the work. They should not be stealing time from their employers, looking at their social media all day while they're supposed to be doing work, that sort of thing. So Christians should look different in this matter of the worker shortage. And, um, and perhaps it just makes an opportunity for us to teach our young people and ourselves that uh, we have an opportunity because we're willing to work and even willing to work in jobs that other people might not be willing to work because we're service-minded. I mean, are you willing like Jesus to wash somebody's feet? Are you willing to be a sanitation worker? You know, something to think about if you need a job. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these uh, different items this morning, and I pray that it's been a challenge to us and encouragement and informative as we think about these different matters today. Thank you for letting us think about them and uh, for giving us the word which guides us in these matters. Thank you for your people, and I pray you'd bless them and help them in Christ's name. Amen.